0: Well, again, good morning. It's great to see you. You all are the, maybe you're gluttons for punishment or something. I mean, we've had a long week. We've had all these worship services. And here on Sunday morning, December 26th, you chose to come again. It's amazing uh, that you're here. Uh, Apparently, you just love the holiday season. And so I'm going to give you a gift this morning and let you know of another holiday that you might not know about on Tuesday of this week there is another holiday that you are invited to recognize and observe since about 485 the year 485 christians around the world have recognized this tuesday as a day called the feast of the holy Innocents. the feast of the holy Innocents is the day where and again christians around the world recognize the passage we're going to look at this morning, Matthew chapter 2, and the account, the true story of the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem. Aren't you glad you came this morning to hear such an encouraging passage? Uh, But I want you to open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 2 as we do look at one of these passages of Scripture that we're tempted to just kind of pass over and pretend isn't there when it comes to the sanitized versions of the Christmas story that make us feel really good. Uh, This is a passage that might not make us feel really good, but it is good, and we'll see why. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, and there, as we take a look at this passage, we're going to take a look at this in two movements, if you will. Uh, The the main leader in this passage is Herod the Great, and I'll talk about him a little more later, but Herod is a terrible man. Uh, He's a tyrannical leader. He is filled with rage, and so in our passage this morning, everybody is on the move to get away from Herod. And number one on your outline, we're going to take a look at the movement of the Magi. You're familiar with the Magi, and we're going to take a look at the movement of the Magi away from this wicked king, Herod. And then number two on your outline, we're going to see the movement of the male child, Jesus, also trying to escape the wrath of Herod the Great. And so grab your Bibles. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 2. Again, number one on your outline is the movement of the Magi. But before we look at the text, I do want to highlight just a few preliminary questions that are important. A few preliminary questions before we jump into the details of the text. The first one is this, when did the events of Matthew chapter 2 take place? When did the events of Matthew chapter 2 take place? Because notice verse 1, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The problem is we don't know how long after Jesus was born in Bethlehem did Matthew chapter 2 take place. But there's a few hints in this chapter that indicate perhaps this is not days after Jesus' birth as is often depicted, but this is probably months if not up to two years later. For example, just a few things. In verse 11 of Matthew chapter 2, we see that these magi come to a house. At this point, Mary and Joseph and perhaps toddler Jesus are living in a house in Bethlehem. A second clue we get in the passage is that throughout this chapter, Jesus is referred to as a child, not a baby. Now, Full disclosure, the Greek word here for child can refer to a baby, but most often it refers to someone who's a little bit older. And then the third clue we get in this passage that perhaps this is a little further down the chronological line is that when Herod hears about this one born king of the Jews, he asks the magi when they saw his star appearing And from that conversation is when Herod decides to kill all the male children two years of age and younger. And so for these three reasons, many scholars argue that the events we read about here happened several months up to two years, actually, after the birth of Jesus. The reason I'm highlighting this is often our nativity stories and things get it wrong, and it presents the Magi coming to baby Jesus, where perhaps more accurately it's toddler Jesus. Uh, the second preliminary question I want to highlight here is who are these Magi? We hear all about these Magi, and throughout the last 2,000 years, there's a ton of traditions that have developed in history, even what their names were, how many they were, where they came from, what is the star that guided them to Bethlehem. And the bottom line is we really don't know the answers to those questions. There's a lot of theories, a lot of speculations that go on, but all we really know about these magi is that there was more than one, because they're referred to in the plural. There might have been two, there might have been three, as is often depicted. There might have been 200. We simply don't know. We don't know exactly where they came from. All the text tells us is that they came from the east, we don't know exactly what it was that was guiding them. Is it some constellation? Is it the glory of God? Whatever it is, it's miraculous because this thing moves and it disappears and reappears. But we don't know exactly what it was that guided them. The most important thing that we do know about these men is why they came. They came to worship the one born, the king of Israel. And so with those preliminary questions out of the way, let's jump into the text and see what we do know about this account here in Matthew chapter 2. Let me read for you first verses 1 and 2. Matthew tells us now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, that's Herod the great, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So again, Matthew tells us that this happens sometimes after the birth of Jesus. Perhaps months or even up to two years Later, These magi from the east arrive in Jerusalem and notice their question. They arrive from the east in Jerusalem and they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. The first thing I want you to see about these magi is where they go. They go to Jerusalem because that's the natural place you would go to the capital city if you're looking for the one who's born king over Israel, right? And so the Magi travel to Jerusalem. They're looking for the king in the capital city of Jerusalem, and they're asking around, well, okay, well, who, where is the one born king of the Jews? The second thing I want you to see in this passage is the word, is the word born, The Magi are asking people around Jerusalem, where is the one born king of the Jews? And here, there might be a hint of what's going to cause Herod's rage that we'll read about in the next verse, because Herod was not born king. He basically became ruler through warfare and politics, not by birth. He knows that the throne is not rightfully his. And so, when he hears the account that there has been one born king of the Jews, this raises his suspicion. And it sets up the terror for what we see in the rest of the passage. Notice verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled And all Jerusalem with him. See, when Herod the Great heard that one has been born king of the Jews, the passage here in verse 3 tells us that he was troubled. And for Herod to be troubled is a troubling thing because he is a crazy person. Herod the Great, we know historically, was a madman. And so when he is troubled, notice all of Jerusalem is troubled with him because they know the rage of Herod. And historically, we know in writings of Josephus and in other accounts that Herod the Great, again, was a horrible person. Uh, Just as a quick list of some of the things he was known for. uh, First of all, once Herod's young brother-in-law was becoming increasingly popular, So suddenly, he had a drowning accident and died. Now, the problem is, we know from archaeology that the pool in which this man died was quite shallow, and so it's surprising, perhaps, that a young man, an adult man, would have a drowning accident in such a shallow pool. Perhaps it wasn't an accident after all. Secondly, Herod the Great wrongly suspected two of his own sons to plot against him, so he had them strangled to death. Five days before his own death, Herod, on his own deathbed, had another one of his sons executed. In a fit of jealous rage, he had his favorite wife strangled to death, even though she turned out to be innocent of the crime after she had died. Fearing that people would not mourn at his death, he ordered that nobles from out the land would be executed when he died to make sure people were actually sad on his day of death. And then Caesar Augustus famously remarked, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. So do you get the picture here of just what kind of guy this is? This is not the kind of guy that you know, you're really buddies with. And when he is troubled, as we see here in verse 3, all of Jerusalem is troubled with him because they know what he's capable of. Well, having heard that one is born king of the Jews and having been a little troubled by this, notice what Herod does next in verse 4. It says, Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, the religious leaders, he, Herod, inquired of them, where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod's heard that one has been born king of the Jews, And so naturally, he turns to the religious leaders and he asks them about their prophecies. Where is the king of the Jews? Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And notice that the religious leaders know the right answer. They turn, right, to to the Old Testament and they know from the book of Micah that the Messiah, the Savior, the king is going to be born in Bethlehem. But what I want you to notice is that these religious leaders don't really seem all excited about that, right? Like, there's no indication in the text that they're going out to Bethlehem to find the one born the king of the Jews. They seem quite apathetic about the fact that their king, their Messiah, has been born. But Herod is interested. He wants to know where the Messiah is born, and his next question we see, he wants to know when the Messiah was born. Notice verses 7 and 8. Having heard where the Messiah was born, now verse 7 says, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report back to me. And here's the lie, so that I too may come and worship him. So Herod has learned from the prophecies of the Old Testament, book of Micah, where the Messiah was born, from the religious leaders. Now he turns to the Magi, and he determines based on when the star appeared, when the Messiah was born. So now he knows the location and the time, and he has no intention, despite what he says, to go worship this child king. Obviously, he plans to kill him because that's the kind of guy Herod is. So notice what happens next. Verse 9 tells us, after hearing the king, they, the magi, went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the magi left for their own country by another way. A couple things I want you to see here in these verses. Again, notice that this star is now moving. It's moving, it's kind of reappeared and now it's moving and it rests over the place where the child is found, where Jesus is to be found. This is perhaps an allusion to the Exodus experience when God moved by a pillar of cloud and fire uh, and guided the Jewish people. Uh, But notice the Magi come, they follow this star and they come to Bethlehem about five miles from Jerusalem where they were to Bethlehem and they do the most important thing. They worship Jesus. They present to him gifts, verse 11 says gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, By the way, down here on the front table, you can come check it out after the service. I have some frankincense, that's the amber, and some myrrh, that's the red colored. I don't have any gold, but you're welcome to deposit that here at the front table. and I'll make sure it's taken care of. But seriously, come check it out. It's pretty cool. Um, and you can take some with you if you want. Um, it'll be fun. But then notice what happens in verse 12. After worshiping Jesus, verse 12 says, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another route. Again, number one in your outline is about the movement of the Magi. The Magi have moved from the east to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem. They've now worshipped the king, and now they are moving out of the way because they do not want to interact with Herod. Everybody understands that this Herod guy is no one to be messed with, and so we see here the movement of the Magi. And the wise men wise up and avoid Herod on their way back. But they're not the only ones avoiding herod number two on your outline we see that the male child himself is moved to escape the wrath of herod the great let me read for you matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 here's number two on your outline the movement of the male child matthew tells us now when they had gone when the magi had gone behold an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream and said get up Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So after the movement of the Magi, here we see the movement of the male child. Jesus, again, probably a toddler now, is moved from Israel to Egypt. About a 175-mile trip, depending on the route. But why Egypt? Why Egypt? Notice verse 15 says that he remained there until the death of Herod, and this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. This is a quotation from the book of Hosea chapter 11. And what Matthew is showing here is that Jesus really begins a kind of new exodus experience. That just like God led the people uh, out of Egypt during the exodus, now Jesus is bringing a spiritual exodus, if you will. He is a, a new leader and out of Egypt is where God called him. But continuing in the passage, notice what happens next. Now with Mary and Joseph and Jesus in Egypt, or at least on their way to Egypt, verse 16 says, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, which is not a good thing, and sent and slew, All the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Once again, Matthew connects here the story of Jesus to the story of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament when they were taken off into Babylonian exile. And he highlights the weeping, the mourning at those who died. And again, this is a passage I don't want us to just skip over or quickly pass over. I want to invite you to really enter into the emotion and the heaviness of this that Herod had murdered all of the male children two years of age and younger, according to the time he had determined from the Magi. By the way, if you've been to Israel, if you've been to the Herodium, the fortress just south of Bethlehem, it's perhaps from there that Herod dispatched these soldiers who marched into Bethlehem murdering All of these baby boys. If you've not been to Israel, by the way, there'll be future trips, uh, I assure you. um, And I'd invite you to to join me on one of those. But this is a terrible passage. This is a heavy passage. And even continuing, we see that it, it doesn't get much better. I mean, verse 19 says that, "...when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt." And said, get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, that's up in the north, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called Nazarene. A couple things here for you just historically to know. When Herod died, he divided his kingdom up into parts and gave them to uh, his sons, the ones he hadn't killed. And uh, we read that there in the south, in the vicinity of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, his son Herod Archelaus was ruling, and Herod Archelaus was also a crazy man. Uh, the apple didn't fall far from the tree with Herod Herod Archelaus. In fact, right around this time, he had murdered about 3,000 Jews during the celebration of Passover. And so an angel warns Joseph, hey, don't go back to that area. That's not going to be any better. So instead, go north to Galilee to a place called Nazareth. And there, um, a man by the name of Herod Antipas was in charge. And he by comparison, was a much better ruler. And so God uses these events and these kings, these rulers to move Jesus north into Galilee, to Nazareth, and this fulfills the statement from the prophets, Matthew says, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, if you flip through your Old Testament, you are not going to find a passage that says the Messiah will be a Nazarene. So what in the world is Matthew talking about here? I think the best explanation is in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah talks about a branch that will grow, a shoot of Jesse. And the word for branch is the Hebrew word netzer. And there's probably a word play going on here with Matthew between the Hebrew word netzer and uh, the city of Nazareth or Nazarene. But the major point, really what I want you to see here, without getting lost in the scholarly debates about all of this stuff, the most important thing I want you to see here is really the the gravity and the weight of this passage, the the amount of death that takes place in these first few years of Jesus' life. It's a terrible thing. And it's an odd story. It's one we're tempted to skip over especially when it comes to our Christmas cards and to our nativity stories and our children's Christmas plays. I mean, can you imagine if in our children's Christmas plays we had this scene played out, right? Can you imagine what it would be like if, you know, from the stage right, we had a group of Herodian soldiers march onto the stage, murdering all the two-year-old boys on the scenes, and you parents in the crowd or shrieking out in horror as your sons are pretended to be murdered i mean this is not something we really depict right when it comes to christmas this is not something we put on our christmas cards but here it is it's a depressing and kind of awkward passage to preach on but it's true the reason I think it's important is because it shows us that this was the world Jesus was born in. Jesus was born in a world with a corrupt politician. Jesus was born in a world with even pagans wanting to find someone to worship. Jesus was born in a world that, quite honestly, doesn't make it into our Hallmark movies, but it's real. And I promise you a question that wrestled, people wrestled with and went through the minds probably of Mary and Joseph as they learned about what happened in Bethlehem. I mean, can you imagine these babies? If Jesus was up to two years old, these are babies that Jesus played with. These are parents that Mary and Joseph knew in their time in Bethlehem. And a natural question would be, God, where are you in all of this? Why would you allow these innocent ones to suffer? And somehow in God's mysterious wisdom, he allowed this to take place so that the child Jesus would escape, his life would be protected, ultimately so he could grow up and die in our place. That Jesus' life was here preserved so later he could lay down his life for you and for me. And that's really where we need to see how this story ultimately ends. That yes, God allowed this suffering to take place ultimately so that his own son would lay down his life. And listen, for those of you here, those of you watching online, I know that each, all of us, we go through times of suffering. We go through times of asking this question, you know, God, where are you in the midst of this? And here we see his ultimate plan to lay down his life for you and for me. And if you've never trusted in him, my question to you would be, what is the source of your hope? How do you get through the suffering in a world like this without him? And I'd give you that opportunity, the invitation where you are simply to trust in the one who laid down his life. One of the reasons I love this passage, as awkward as it is, is because if you were inventing a religion, this is not the kind of story you would include. But because our faith is no invention of man, because it's true, these are the types of stories we we see throughout the biblical account. And if it weren't for these stories, then legitimately people could raise the question, I mean, is this any different than Frosty the Snowman? This seems too fairy tale and make believe, but because God includes these real life events in the accounts of Scripture, to me it's evidence that this actually is true because nobody would make this up. This doesn't preach well, and yet it's true. So, what do we do with a passage like this? Why in the world would I preach on such a depressing passage, you know, the day after Christmas? And uh, there in your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider. uh, But just for your uh, thought, I want to present to you a few traditions that have developed over the years. As I said at the beginning of this message, Tuesday is the day when Christians around the world observe what's called the Feast of the Holy Innocents in recognition of this passage right here and those baby boys who were murdered in Bethlehem. And over the years, over the last... Um, 1,500 years, really, different traditions have developed over time, and I want to share with you a few of those traditions. Uh, The first tradition that I want to mention that passed away in about the 17th century is that on the morning of the Feast of the Holy Innocents, parents would, first thing in the morning, spank their children And when the children asked why, parents get to say, because that's a reminder to you of the suffering of those innocent babies born in Bethlehem. Now thankfully, since the 17th century, that tradition has passed and that's no longer done, although I'm considering resurrecting it this week in my household, just for fun. A little more seriously, quite a bit more seriously actually, Another tradition that's associated with this day is to take it as an opportunity to say a prayer of blessing over your kids. Uh, To begin the day with a prayer of blessing over the kids God has given to you if you have kids and to thank God, to praise God for the gift of life, for protecting them, for giving them to you and asking God to bless them and to bless you as their parents. I think that's a great tradition. Another tradition that developed over the years is to say a prayer for those who have lost children. The loss of a child is something that no parent should have to suffer, and yet tragically it does happen. And I'm sure each and every one of us, you know someone who has lost a child, and what a great time to ask God to comfort them, um, for the Spirit to remind them of His love on a day like this the fourth and final tradition that i'd offer to you is and this is your one thing for this week is one of the ways that people around the world observe the feast of the holy innocence day is to support a local crisis pregnancy center or another organization that supports those who suffer and i'd ask that you pray about what god might be leading you to do uh, whether it's supporting a crisis pregnancy center or whether it's supporting some other ministry that protects life in the womb or out of the womb, I think that's a great application of this passage. And to highlight one for you this morning, um, some of you are aware of a great ministry that takes place within the walls of this church, uh, the ministry of young lives. And over the last six months, man, I've just fallen in love with this ministry. We have another, a number of women in our church who week in and week out, love on and minister to in a tangible and spiritual way. Young teenage moms in our community who chose life who need a little help. Whether that's diapers and baby wipes or the spiritual help that comes from the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Every week we have a number of women here within the walls of grace who reach out with love and compassion to teenage moms in our community. If you're interested in a ministry like that, I can't more highly recommend it. I think it's fantastic. If you're interested in serving there, just jot that down on that connection card. You can drop it in the offering box and somebody will get in touch with you. But um, if God lays it on your heart to get involved in a ministry like that, I would love if you would. So this is Matthew chapter two. Again, it's kind of an awkward passage And um, you faithful remnant who came to worship this morning, you might regret having come now. Maybe you wish you stayed home. Um, But I like to preach on passages like this because it really touches the heart that many of us feel week in and week out. The suffering that is ever present around us. And in this passage, we do see the hope of the gospel. That again, Jesus' life was spared ultimately so he would lay it down later. That he would die in our place to fix what's wrong with us and also to bring hope to the world we live in. And it's for his return that we're ultimately waiting and longing. Let me pray. Father, thank you. uh, Again, for kind of an awkward passage. But thank you for a passage that's real. Thank you for a passage that is a reminder to us that even in the days of Jesus, Jesus lived under a corrupt government. Jesus lived in a world that was filled with pain and suffering. And it's ultimately because of this pain and suffering and sin that God, you preserved his life so later he would lay it down. God, thank you for the hope of the gospel that we have in this one born King of the Jews. Thank you for the hope that one day he is coming again to bring a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more suffering. But God, until that day comes, I pray that you would fill us with hope. You would fill our lips with praise that you would help us as we sing here now to go tell it on the mountain that our Savior, the King, is born. I ask this for myself and for each one here, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen.